There was a knock one morning, a man was standing at my door. He said, hello, I'm from Halliburton, have you heard of us before? We'd like to lease your backyard to drill for natural gas. It's called hydraulic fracturing, and it is the very past for a clean energy future above the Marcella Stone. Plus, we'll give you lots of money and a new mobile phone. I said, you are a corporate crook. I don't believe the things you tell, and you can drive right off my property and then go straight to hell. No fracking way. No fracking way, I don't trust corporate salesmen, whatever they may say. No fracking way, no fracking way, no fracking way. No fracking way, no fracking way. No way. Welcome to Frack You Very Much, a fracking terrible podcast. If you want to check out all the back episodes of Frack You Very Much, just go to frackyouverymuch.com. You'll find a link there to send me a message and some links there to make a donation. You can make a one-time or recurring donation to keep this podcast free and independent. First up, we've got a story written by Mike Ludwig, published at truthout.org. State lawmakers in Pennsylvania are demanding an investigation into the public health impacts of fracking after a new study found evidence of harmful chemicals accumulating in the bodies of children and their families living near fracking wells in communities inundated by fossil fuel development. Environmental Health News, a nonprofit news organization, released a series of in-depth reports last week based on a two-year study of fracking pollution in Pennsylvania's Westmoreland County and Washington County, two heavily fracked counties in a state that has been at the epicenter of the shale gas boom for over a decade. Backed by an independent review board of scientists, watchdog journalists found toxic chemicals associated with fracking in air and water samples at levels that exceeded safety thresholds. The study also found evidence that people living near gas wells and other fracking infrastructure bear a body burden from fracking in the form of industrial pollutants such as benzene, ethylbenzene, styrene, and toluene that were detected in their bodies at elevated levels. Families living closer to fracking wells also had higher levels of chemicals such as 1,2,3-trimethylbenzene, 2-heptanone, and naphthalene than families living further away. These compounds are linked to irritation of the skin, eyes, and digestive tract, along with a host of health problems associated with exposure to fracking chemicals and emissions. With help from scientists and a reputable lab, journalists collected urine samples from the families and tested them for fracking chemicals and their biomarkers, which are chemicals that show a pollutant has been broken down by the body. For example, one nine-year-old boy living near fracking wells tested positive for a biomarker of toluene, a harmful chemical that can damage the liver and kidneys, at levels 91 times of that seen in the average American. Gunnar Bjornsson, a 13-year-old boy who lives with his family in Washington County, tested positive for 11 industrial chemicals, including benzene, toluene, and naphthalene, on a summer day in August 2019. 
Samples taken from Gunner, his siblings, and parents showed elevated levels of biomarkers for xylene, benzene, toluene, and other harmful chemicals associated with fracking for oil and gas at levels much higher than national averages. The study's scope is small, five households within a few miles of fracked natural gas wells, and the authors caution that more research is needed to show that the pollutants found in the bodies of residents came from the fracking industry. However, the study adds to a large body of research linking fracking to a variety of health problems, ranging from asthma and migraines to cancer and increased infant mortality that has only grown as the fracking boom transformed large swaths of the United States over the past decade and as fossil fuel production skyrocketed. In Pennsylvania, research shows that low-income and rural families are most likely to be exposed to fracking pollution. Quote, over the years, the research documenting the harms linked to fracking from the pipelines and compressor stations to the toxic radioactive waste created by all of this drilling has continued to grow, said Megan McDonough, Pennsylvania State Director of the environmental group Food and Water Watch, in an email. We are seeing cancer-causing chemicals in children's bodies. Dave Brown, a toxicology expert with the Environmental Health Project, who advised the authors of the report, said the study is the first of its kind in Pennsylvania. Brown said policymakers should be alarmed that fracking has been an issue in the state for years, but researchers are just now beginning to test for fracking chemicals in children. While the study doesn't prove that kids are contaminated by fracking, the fact that the children both show an elevated body burden of chemicals associated with fracking and live near fracking infrastructure is telling. Quote, what would be the explanation of this other than these people have potential exposures due to these gas fracking chemicals, Brown said in an interview. Indeed, policymakers are alarmed by the study. Well, some of them at least. The fossil fuel industry is known for spending large sums of money to influence lawmakers in Pennsylvania. Last week, a bipartisan group of 35 state lawmakers sent a letter to Governor Tom Wolf, a Democrat, requesting he take immediate action and use state funding to conduct a study on exposure to fracking chemicals using similar biomonitoring methods. In short, the lawmakers want Pennsylvania to start testing its own residents for fracking chemicals years after the state was transformed by a fracking boom. Quote, Quite frankly, allowing children and families from throughout our Commonwealth to suffer in the name of corporate profit is unacceptable, unethical, and immoral, said State Senator Katie Muth, a Democrat. Wolf's administration has already given $2.5 million to the University of Pittsburgh to replicate studies from other states on the health effects of fracking and investigate a rash of rare bone cancers among children in southwestern Pennsylvania. A biomonitoring study would go even further, allowing residents to find out whether harmful chemicals associated with fracking are accumulating in their bodies. Quote, in southwestern Pennsylvania, there are families grieving the loss of their children due to rare bone cancers, and they are demanding to know if their suffering is linked to the fracking industry, McDonough said. What more do we need to know? How much more suffering must we inflict on these communities before we say enough is enough? Staying on the topic of health studies, here is a piece from 
futurity.org. And this is written by Mark Michaud Rochester. A new study links hydraulic fracking to an increased risk of heart attack, hospitalization, and death. The Marcellus Formation straddles the New York State and Pennsylvania border, a region that shares similar geography and population demographics. However, on one side of the state line, unconventional natural gas development, or fracking, is banned, while on the other side, it represents a multi-billion dollar industry. Researchers took advantage of this, quote, natural experiment to examine the health effects of fracking and found that people who live in areas with high concentration of wells are at higher risk for heart attacks. Quote, fracking is associated with increased acute myocardial infarction, hospitalization rates among middle-aged men, older men, and older women, as well as with increased heart attack-related mortality among middle-aged men says study senior author Elaine Hill, an associate professor in the University of Rochester Medical Center, URMC, Public Health Sciences Department. Our findings lend support for increased awareness about cardiovascular risks of unconventional natural gas development and scaled-up heart attack prevention, as well as suggest that bans on hydraulic fracturing can be protective for public health. Natural gas extraction, including hydraulic fracking, is a well-known contributor to air pollution. Fracking wells operate around the clock in the process of drilling, gas extraction, and flaring, the burning off of natural gas byproducts, release organic compounds, nitrogen oxide, and other chemicals and particulates into the air. Additionally, each well requires the constant transportation of equipment, water, and chemicals, as well as the removal of wastewater from the fracking process, further contributing to air pollution levels. Fracking wells remain in operation for several years, prolonging exposure to people who work at the well sites and who live nearby. Instead of the typical single source of industrial air pollution, such as factory or power plant, fracking entails multiple well sites spread across a large and often rural geographic area. In 2014, there were more than 8,000 fracking well sites in Pennsylvania. Some areas of the state have a dense population of fracking wells. Three Pennsylvania counties have more than 1,000 sites. Contrast that with New York State, which has essentially banned the process of hydraulic fracking since 2010. Exposure to air pollution is recognized as a significant factor for cardiovascular disease. Other research has shown that the intensity of oil and gas development and production is positively associated with diminished vascular function, blood pressure, and inflammatory markers associated with stress and short-term air pollution exposure. Light and noise pollution from the continuous operation of the wells are also associated with increasing stress, another contributor to cardio cardiovascular disease. To measure the effect of fracking on cardiovascular health, researchers studied heart attack hospitalization and death rates in 47 counties on either side of the New York and Pennsylvania state line. Using data from 2005 to 2014, they observed that heart attack rates were 1.4 to 2.8% higher in Pennsylvania, depending upon the age group and level of fracking activity 
in a given county. The associations between fracking and heart attack hospitalization and death were most consistent among men aged 45 to 54, a group most likely to be in the unconventional gas industry workforce and probably the most exposed to fracking-related air pollutants and stressors. Heart attack deaths also increase in this age group by 5.4% or more in counties with high concentrations of well sites. Hospitalization and mortality rates also jump significantly in women over the age of 65. Fracking is more concentrated in rural communities, which the authors speculate may further compromise cardiovascular health due to the trend of rural hospital closures. People who suffer from cardiovascular disease in these areas may be at increased risk of adverse health outcomes, including death, due to less access to care. The authors suggest that more should be done to raise awareness about fracking-related risks for cardiovascular disease, and physicians should keep a closer eye on high-risk patients who reside in areas with fracking activity. They also contend that the study should inform policymakers about the trade-offs between public health and the economic activity generated by the industry. Quote, These findings contribute to the growing body of evidence on the adverse health impact of fracking, says first author Alina Denham, a Ph.D. candidate in health policy. Several states, including New York, have taken the precaution of prohibiting hydraulic fracturing until more is known about the health and environmental consequences. If causal mechanisms behind our findings are ascertained, our findings would suggest that bans on hydraulic fracturing can be protective for human health. And next up is a piece published at theguardian.com, and this is written by Jerry Redfern. It's not clear why the water line broke on a Sunday in February 2019, but by the time someone noticed and stopped the leak, more than 1,400 barrels of fracking slurry mixed with crude oil had drained off the well site owned by Enduring Resources and into a snow-filled wash. From there, that slurry, nearly 59,000 gallons, flowed more than a mile downstream towards Chaco Culture National Historical Park before leaching into the stream bed over the next few days and disappearing from view. The rolling high desert landscape where this happened is Navajo Nation, off-reservation trust land in rural Sandoval County, New Mexico. Neighbors are few and far between, and they didn't notice the spill. The extra truck traffic of the cleanup work blended in with the oil and gas drilling operations along the dirt roads in that part of the county. Then, three days after the spill, something ignited and exploded 2,100 feet away on another well site owned by Enduring Resources, starting a fire that took local firefighters more than an hour to put out. The two accidents account for just 1% of oil and gas-related incidents in northwestern New Mexico in 2019, according to statistics kept by the New Mexico Oil Conservation Division, OCD. Since those two, there have been another 317 accidents in the region as of 29 March, including oil spills, fires, blowouts, and gas releases. There were 3,600 oil and gas spills over the previous decade, both smaller and larger. 
In both cases in February 2019, the people living closest to the accident sites were among the last to know what happened. Daniel So, chairman of the Health, Education, and Human Services Committee of the Navajo Nation Council, chalks up the lack of communication to a prevailing attitude he sees among outsiders working on Native American lands. Quote, oh, it's on Indian land. Don't worry about it. Because historically, few outsiders have. The Eastern Agency of the Navajo Nation sits above 7,000 feet in the northwest corner of New Mexico. As the name implies, it is the easternmost district of the reservation, and in the spring, the weather rides the whipping winds over the scrublands and among the pine trees, changing from warm sunshine to rain to blizzard conditions by the hour. You have to firmly plant your feet to keep from being blown over. There, the tiny town of Counselor takes up a wide spot along State Highway 550, which cuts from east to west along the northern edge of the Eastern Agency. There are a few houses, a convenience store, and a clutch of abandoned buildings, which are the remains of an old mission, a church, a boarding school, a gymnasium, and some apartments. The town is the center of Counselor Chapter, a traditional local form of Navajo government. North of the highway is land called Deneta, the center of the Navajo people's creation story. The Navajo call themselves Diné, which means the people. On the south side of the highway, a hand-painted sign reads Entering Energy Sacrifice Zone, next to the turnoff to the spider web of muddy, snowy, rutted dirt roads that string together the homes and drilling rigs and wells in the area. It takes a vehicle with four-wheel drive to confidently navigate here. That's what the oil field workers drive, if they aren't driving semis. Quote, It's really hard to come here, says Mario Atencio a legislative district assistant with the Navajo Nation Council. He's talking of the emotional difficulty. This land is infused with his people's history, but with all of the wells, quote, it looks like a very industrial landscape. His grandmother's home is about a half a mile away and is the closest to the two accident sites. On maps, the area is defined by the rectangular grid of private lands, federal lands, and Navajo Nation off-reservation trust lands, which are managed by the U.S. Bureau of Indian Affairs, BIA, on behalf of the Navajo. This checkerboard is a land of often differing jurisdictions, rules, and interests, and for decades now, oil and gas wells. Local residents have complained for years that officials with the U.S. Bureau of Land Management, BLM, and BIA haven't listened to their concerns about drilling in the area. The most recent wave of drilling started around 2009 when land agents called families to the chapter house to sign leases for the oil beneath their homes. So says they were treated like football players and told, sign here, you'll get a signing bonus. They don't tell us, you know, there's a big oil boom right here and you're sitting on some riches, so you better be sure you have your own lawyers at the negotiating table, says Atencio. Many didn't understand what they were signing and what the future would bring. Quote, when you have more than 70% unemployment and you have more than 70% of the population living in abject poverty, you can't fault them for signing, so says. 
He lays some of the blame for the misunderstanding at the feet of the Bureau of Land Management, which manages land rights on behalf of those living on Navajo Trust lands. Quote, Nobody from the BIA advised those folks, so says. At the meetings, the BIA stood in the corner, stood in the shadows, never said anything. Public affairs specialists from the BLM and BIA did not respond by deadline for this story. So it tells the story of an elderly woman who signed, thinking that the drilling for oil would be like a John Wayne movie. A man digs a hole in the ground, strikes oil, and then dances in the fountain of black crude that shoots up and everyone rakes in the money. So says she told him, quote, but right now I can't even get a good night's sleep because of the truck traffic. And because of an allotment system that divides ownership of tribal lands among all of the families and all of the people attached to a parcel, the money most people received was less than expected. Atencio explains that an allotment with 10 people on it might pay out $1,000 a month, but there are also allotments with hundreds of people. It's significant to some people, he says, but that's a mere pittance for destroying the water, the air, and dumping hazardous waste. Tons of it. Nobody explained this process to the folks who signed, so says. The people in Counselor say they weren't counseled. At first, nobody explained the February 2019 spill and fire to local people either. Someone in Montana heard of the explosion and contacted so through the grapevine. Atencio received an email from someone with the Navajo Nation nearly two months after the spill. That was the first the two heard of the accidents and their severity. Enduring Resources of Denver owns both wells and more than 920 others in New Mexico, all of them in the northwest corner of the state. The company did not respond to repeated calls for comment on this story, but incident reports filed by the company with an OCD offer an outline of events. OCD regulates nearly all aspects of oil and gas production in the state, from permitting wells to tracking spills to tallying production to certifying closed wells. According to the reports, a contractor initially spotted the 17 February spill. The well was new and had just been hydraulically fractured. The process in which a slurry of water, sand, and chemicals is repeatedly slammed into a wellbore to fracture the rock at the bottom to allow trapped oil and gas to flow freely up to the surface. At the end of that process and before producing a clean stream of oil or gas, a well produces flowback, a combination of fracking slurry mixed with oil, gas, and the brine that often forms near petroleum deposits. A valve failed on the well, causing a, quote, integrity failure. Integrity failure, that's brilliant, because that's what these companies have, integrity failures. An integrity failure on the flowback line. Speaking of these companies, this particular company called uh, Enduring Resources. Also, nice double meaning, because to endure means to to put up with something that is oppressive. A valve failed on the oil well, causing an integrity failure on the flowback line, leading to 1,400 barrels of that contaminated slurry pouring off the well pad, across a dirt road, and into the snow-filled wash. Workers build a small dam to contain the slurry so it could be recovered, but snow melt washed almost all of it downstream. 
Workers built more check dams, but most of the slurry eventually soaked into the creek bed. Three days later, at the neighboring well, also newly fracked, a tank holding flowback caught fire after someone didn't properly ground a vacuum truck on an adjacent tank. That created a static buildup that sparked and ignited fumes from the flowback. Quote, I didn't know another one exploded. Jesus, says Atencio. He'd heard of an explosion from his uncle, but thought it was connected to the spill at the neighboring well. It was during an interview with Capital in Maine that he learned it was a separate accident. That's all these highly dangerous facilities all around my grandma's house, he says. There was a big old explosion. It shook the ground, says Wilbert Atencio, Mario's uncle. He was in his mother's garage when it happened, at around 7.45 in the evening. I thought it was like an earthquake or something. On that February evening two years ago, Wilbert hopped in his truck and drove a quarter mile down the road toward the sound, only to find the road blocked by contractor trucks with their lights flashing. Quote, we have livestock and everything, and we wanted to know what was going on, he says. But he couldn't see the fire or the well site itself, as it sits on the other side of a rise down a side road. The contractor said he couldn't pass and told him to go home. He later saw state police, emergency medical technicians, and fire engines arrive. Three of those vehicles came from the volunteer fire department in Cuba, nearly an hour's drive away. According to the fire chief, Rick Romero, they got the call a little before 8 p.m., arrived at the burning well around 9.45, and didn't leave the scene until 12.40 in the morning. Engines from neighboring San Juan County also responded, and both departments sprayed the well with water and fire-suppressing foam for more than an hour before it was extinguished. And as we know, much fire-suppressing foam contains some very, very damaging uh, chemicals to the environment. So I don't know what particular fire-suppressing foam was uh, used here. But the, the, some common ingredients in fire-suppressing foam are long persistent in the environment and are in all of our bodies at this point. Quote, We graze on this land. We live on this land, says Wilbert. But he doesn't see the oil drilling industry changing in his neighborhood anytime soon. It's been going on for decades, and he thinks it will keep drilling into the future. You know they're drilling everywhere, Wilbert says, this in a call from job site in Palmdale, California. There are oil and gas wells there, too. Norm Gome is a retired water engineer and the former director of the New Mexico Interstate Stream Commission. He has a bachelor's degree in electrical engineering and a master's degree in civil engineering with a focus on water and wastewater engineering from New Mexico State University. Early in his career, he spent a dozen years as an operations and maintenance manager of Albuquerque's water, wastewater, and stormwater pumping systems. Recently, he and Peter Coa, a retired mathematician who did a large dataset analysis in an automation group at Intel, pulled reams of files from OCD's online system that tracks spills and other accidents in the oil and gas industry across New Mexico. They found thousands upon thousands of accidents that are chalked up to everything from lightning strikes to vandalism to valve failures. But the two biggest causes of accidents by far 
are equipment failure, followed by corrosion. To Guam, these simply aren't good enough reasons for oil and gas wells to spill their toxic contents. Equipment failure means you're not maintaining your equipment, he says, and corrosion failure means you're using the wrong components. Add to that accidents caused by human error, and three-fourths of all accidents in their accounting were preventable if stronger regulation were in place to nudge producers in line. Quote, Spill prevention is voluntary, says Guam. There are no laws punishing producers for spills, and some operators chose to spend money to prevent spills, and some apparently don't. Guam and COA find this, data, this idea reflected again in another view of the records, which shows vast differences between well operators when it comes to numbers of accidents compared with how much oil or gas they are producing. Some operators do a pretty good job of producing with few spills, Guam says. Some have rates of spill that are 20 times as high as other producers. Taken together, he says, their data analysis shows that most spills are preventable. In the chart of producers compiled by Guam and COA, Enduring Resources produces quite a bit of oil and gas with comparatively few accidents. But according to OCD's reports, human error and equipment failure caused the accidents in 2019. To Guam, despite the company's generally good record, those reasons are not acceptable. In August 2020, a pipeline operated by a different company, Harvest Four Corners of Houston, leaked natural gas into an ephemeral wash about 50 miles away from the enduring resources accidents. Even though crews began cleanup immediately, Harvest got hit with a $92,000 fine from OCD because it neglected to report the spill for 44 days. State regulations require phoning in major incidents within 24 hours and filing a written report within 15 days. Minor incidents, those involving less than 25 barrels of fluids or 500 MCF of gas, require only a written report within 15 days of finding the release. Enduring resources face no fines and paid no penalties for either the fracking spill or the well fire. There is no violation in spilling fracking waste or wells catching fire in New Mexico. The only violation is in not reporting accidents. Since Enduring Resources promptly reported both, OCD played a supervisory role that consisted of approving the remediation plan and site cleanup. Of all of the agencies that were eventually notified and kept abreast of the spill, OCD, BIA, BLM, the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, and the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, none levied a fine or sanction. According to paperwork filed with OCD three months after Enduring Resources Well spilled 1,400 barrels of fracking waste near Atencio's grandmother's house in 2019, it had another accident, spilling 20 barrels of crude oil straight into the ground. Half of it was recovered. It was deemed a minor spill by OCD rules, and the case was closed after it was reported by Enduring Resources. Standing in the biting wind on the dirt road next to the spill site in mid-March, Mario Atencio wonders aloud what was in the fracking mixture that spilled on his family's land and ran down the wash in front of him. Measurements included in the final report that enduring resources filed with OCD show that the water table is only 50 feet below the surface. His family has run sheep and sometimes cattle on the land, and the animals would drink from the wash where the toxic mixture sank in.
Farther down the creek is a hand pump, where people fill a water tank for livestock. Atencio believes the water table is probably unusable now. This used to support 40 or 50 head of sheep, he says, and now the whole water is contaminated. Recently, some state legislators tried to pass new rules that would have imposed fines for spilling fracking waste or so-called produced water, but the bill died in committee in the just-completed New Mexico legislative session. Guam and Atencio both testified in favor of the legislation, but the majority of committee members agreed with industry lobbyists opposed to the proposed rules who said that further regulations could drive the oil and gas industry out of New Mexico. Meanwhile, oil and gas production remains robust, in a year buffeted by massive downturns in demand and prices brought on by the COVID-19 crisis, New Mexico pumped more hydrocarbons out of the ground than ever before. As Atencio stands near the two wells on that windy day in March, semi-trucks hauling sand and fracking equipment whip up and down the washboard road. Quote, Oil companies are supposed to be our business partners. Look at this road, he says, pointing at the dirt. It's a sore point with him that the oil companies didn't even build good dirt roads connecting the well sites. Yeah, he says, we're business partners. It's part of what So calls the, quote, fracking tsunami. Industry rolled through Native American lands, disrupting everything from sleep patterns to finances, and left little behind. Little but a bunch of waste. In the end, there is no community center. No nearby fire station that can handle chemical fires, no money for higher education, and no good roads. And those abandoned mission buildings in Counselor, the school, the church, the apartments. The Navajo Nation bought the town and those buildings for $1 million in 2007, with plans to refurbish them. But so says they found out later they were built with asbestos, and will cost another $2.6 million to tear them down and replace them. Quote, it happened on Indian land, says Toe, so it's trivialized. It's of no big concern. While for many it is much too late, there are some hopeful signs of some regulation, some um, bills that are in play now that will help to protect the air and water from the oil and gas industry, what, what businesses like to call externalities costs that are imposed on the environment and on the public that are not borne by the companies and the people that are doing the drilling and the extracting and reaping the profits. This piece is by Patrick Grenter and is published at sierraclub.org. For decades now, it's been the same old song. Corporate polluters evading the safeguards meant to keep our air and water clean, recklessly risking public health to line their pockets. The Clean Air Act and Clean Water Act were put in place to protect communities from the most harmful industrial pollutants, but exemptions and loopholes have allowed the oil and gas industry to threaten communities' health and safety by exposing their waterways to the hazardous byproducts of fracking. I saw this firsthand near my home in Pennsylvania. I watched trucks dump fracking waste into rivers. I witnessed industry's attempts to pit neighbor against neighbor, and I observed how they intentionally target their operations towards those they perceived to be less deserving of protection. 
Studies show that those who live near fracking wells and other unconventional drilling sites experience adverse impacts on every major organ system. Further, increased fracking activity is associated with higher mortality rates, lower life expectancy, and more common instances of cancer in cardiac and respiratory diseases. Now the tune is finally changing. U.S. House Representatives Matt Cartwright, Jan Schakowsky, Diana DeJet, Joe Negus, and Yvette Clark just reintroduced the FRAC Pack, a comprehensive package of legislation that will hold the oil and gas industry accountable for respecting air and water protections. Here's a breakdown of the legislation. The Cleaner Act eliminates the exemption for oil and gas companies and geothermal energy in the Resources Conservation and Recovery Act, put in place by an outdated 1980 amendment which governs disposal of hazardous material. A Rolling Stone investigation highlights the need to safely dispose of such materials, no matter who produces them. The Fresher Act closes the Clean Water Act loophole for oil and gas companies and creates a study of the effects of stormwater runoff from oil and gas operations. The Shared Act protects communities by requiring oil and gas companies to report the impact of fracking on water quality. Companies would regularly test water sources within a half-mile radius of a fracking site, and those results would be made available in a public database. This bill would ensure that oil and gas companies can't hide how their activities impact our water sources. The Frac Act authorizes the EPA to regulate hydraulically fractured wells and requires public disclosure of the chemical constituents that will be used in the fracturing process before it begins. The Close Act, formerly Breathe Act, closes the aggregation exemption written into the Clean Air Act for oil and gas activities, which allows fossil fuel production, processing, storage, and transmission facilities to emit a range of hazardous air pollutants without meaningful regulation by the EPA. It also adds hydrogen sulfide, a common and dangerous byproduct of oil and gas extraction, back to the Clean Air Act's list of regulated hazardous air pollutants. These policies will be critical in holding oil and gas companies accountable for the damage they've caused to our communities and the climate. With help from our champions in Congress, we look forward to advancing the frack pack and working to keep dirty fuels in the ground in order to tackle the climate crisis and make our water cleaner, air safer, and communities healthier. And this article will be linked in the show notes so you can review the names of those components of that frack pack set of bills and also the names of those representatives that are leading uh, in that push and you can contact your representatives about supporting those efforts uh, pushing for legislation at the in the federal government and state government levels is extremely important to help uh, reducing and controlling the harms of fracking Another activity that is extremely important is taking direct action and protesting and fighting against those um, projects in your area. Next up is a piece from stateimpact.npr.org written by Reed Frazier that tells of one of the successes of those efforts. 
U.S. Steel drops plan for fracking at steel mill. Plan faced local opposition for years. U.S. Steel says it's dropping plans for fracking company to drill for gas at the Pittsburgh area steel mill. The decision comes after years of opposition to the project from some residents. A turning point on the project came last fall when a local zoning board denied a permit extension to Marion Oil and Gas, the company developing the well. The company was planning to appeal that decision, but last week U.S. Steel said it's pulling the plug on the project. In a statement, the company said it, quote, values input from our neighbors and the communities where we live and work, as well as the open dialogue needed to balance our responsibilities to our shareholders, our neighbors, and to environmentally sustainable steelmaking. Edith Abeta with North Braddock Residents for Our Future said the decision shows the power of collective action. For years, her group fought the well, saying it would add to the air pollution caused by U.S. Steel's Edgar Thomas Works. It's incredible, she said. All the work that so many people have done, the people have been listened to. New Mexico-based Marion Oil and Gas received a permit from East Pittsburgh Borough for conditional use to drill and frack a well site at U.S. Steel's Edgar Thompson Works in 2018. But Abeta and others in her group, along with several environmental groups, fought the project. In October, East Pittsburgh officials denied a crucial permit extension. Their willingness to stand up to not only the oil and gas industry, but also to U.S. Steel, is a great example of democracy in action, Abeta said. In an email, Marion Oil and Gas Operations Manager Ryan Davis said the company was dropping the appeal of its zoning permit denial and had agreed to, quote, abandon our efforts to drill a well at the Edgar Thompson steel mill. Kudos and congratulations to everyone that was involved in that important fight. And now for a turn to the the patently obvious. Water is fluid. This piece is also published at stateimpact.npr.org. This is written by Julie Grant. Salty wastewater produced by fracking for oil and gas has to go somewhere. Often, it's injected into disposal wells deep underground. But sometimes that wastewater can find its way back to the surface and cause environmental problems. How? We turn to three experts to find out. A quick geology lesson. The layers of earth beneath Ohio and Pennsylvania are evidence of the region's natural history over hundreds of millions of years. Quote, things get wet, then they get dry. They're lakes, and then they're deserts. That's our past, that's our future, explained Tony Ingrafea, professor emeritus of engineering at Cornell University, who has worked with the energy industry. Those lakes were salty water, and the mud and silt at the bottom were compressed over time into layers of the flaky but tightly packed rock called shale. Meanwhile, on the surface, this region became more like a desert. And what do you have in a desert? Ingrafea asked. Sand. Sand accumulated for many millions of years, creating a hard but porous rock called sandstone. The cycle repeated many times, resulting in layers of shale and sandstone. 
Dead fish and plants caught in the shale layers eventually transformed into natural gas and oil, which over time migrated from the shale and became trapped in the pores of sandstone, creating reservoirs of oil and gas. When people first started drilling for oil in the 1800s, they found it in the sandstone layers. The Many, Many Wells in Ohio and Pennsylvania In Pennsylvania, hundreds of thousands of oil and gas wells have been drilled. In Ohio, tens of thousands. Often, if they stopped producing, they were abandoned. Quote, Pennsylvania and Ohio are the two states with the oldest wells and probably the highest density of wells, especially these really old wells, says Susan Brantley, professor of geosciences at Penn State University, who studies the movement of fluids underground. In recent years, another type of well has become common, fracked shale wells, which can be drilled to 9,000 feet or more below the surface. According to Brantley, about 12,000 fracked shale wells have been drilled in Pennsylvania in the last 15 years or so. Drillers use millions of gallons of water mixed with sand and chemicals at high pressure to crack the deeper Marcellus and Utica shale formations, releasing the oil and gas. Salty wastewater called brine also flows up to the surface. Quote, Some people say the oil and gas industry, they should call it a water industry, because every oil and gas well brings up water with the oil and gas, said Brantley. That chemical-laced wastewater can be toxic and radioactive. Often it gets disposed of in another type of well, disposal wells, called Class II injection wells, where wastewater is injected back into the earth. Pennsylvania has only nine of these, with a handful more on the way. That leaves millions of gallons of Pennsylvania's waste that are trucked to Ohio's 226 injection wells. A Swiss Cheese Landscape Injection wells, oil and gas wells, and older abandoned wells are often all in one area. Quote, When you have this many wells in the landscape, that makes the landscape Swiss cheese, said geologist Terry Engelder, Penn State professor emeritus. Engelder's work, indicating how much natural gas might be accessible by fracking, earned him the nickname Father of the Marcellus Shale. Injecting wastewater into underground rock layers could create problems if there are a large number of wells in the vicinity. Consider porous sandstone, which has tiny spaces in the rock. Liquid under high pressure, like fracking wastewater, can find those spaces in the sandstone and travel underground. And if the wastewater meets a well, it can rush up to the surface. That movement is called migration. In part, to avoid migration, injection well operators in Ohio and Pennsylvania are required to identify and possibly plug abandoned wells up to a half-mile radius, although two recent cases show that wastewater can travel much farther than that. Brine Migration in Ohio Just last month, an unused gas well in Noble County, Ohio, started spewing salty brine water. According to the Ohio Department of Natural Resources, ODNR, more than 1.5 million gallons of wastewater were collected, but not before enough escaped into a nearby creek to kill fish and salamanders. Engelder examined state records and thinks that brine spray was wastewater from a nearby injection well. The injection well and the unused well were drilled into the same underground rock formation, 
a sandstone layer nearly 6,000 feet underground. It flowed along the Medina sandstone 2.54 miles and then back up, he said. He also theorized that the wastewater could have come from another injection well in the Medina sandstone nearly four miles away. Drilling an injection well into the same layer as the other oil and gas wells makes wastewater migration more likely, Engelder said. He looked at a sample of 35 injection well depths in Ohio and found many were drilled into the Medina sandstone layer, the same layer as many older abandoned oil and gas wells. In another migration incident in 2019 in Washington County, Ohio, ODNR concluded that brine from an injection well drilled into shale migrated into an adjacent layer of sandstone, contaminating multiple gas wells five miles away. What about the drinking water supply? Engelder does not think migration creates concerns for drinking water. The modern injection wells are deeper, further from the water table, he said. In the brine migration incident in Washington County, Ohio, the deepest part of the water table is 150 feet beneath the surface. The wastewater brine was injected a few thousand feet underground. The state investigation concluded that while brine moved from a layer of shale into sandstone, it was not likely to move into the more shallow drinking water sources, quote, due to the composition of the rock layers. ODNR recently hired a consultant to confirm this conclusion. But if an oil and gas well that's contaminated with this brine has cracks in the casing, could the brine leak out and contaminate the water table? Not likely in newer oil and gas wells, according to Engelder, because they are constructed with a vertical stainless steel core encased in cement. The cement is pretty good and it's not going to fail, he said. This is a well that was designed for high pressure. But Penn State's Brantley says that many older wells in Ohio and Pennsylvania were not built to those standards. The older the well, the higher the likelihood that there could be some cracking in the cement, she explained, causing a risk of groundwater contamination. She pointed to the Noble County incident, where Brian migrated into an older unused well and came up to the surface. Quote, the older well is going through the freshwater zone, and then Brian came back up through the well, she said. This is an old well, so I don't know how well cased it is. However, there is no evidence that brine wastewater contaminated groundwater in that incident. More injection wells, more migration? Ingrafea from Cornell expects more injected wastewater to find its way to the surface. Quote, Because the more holes you drill in the ground, the more injection wells you have, and the more wells that you have that are being abandoned but not properly plugged, the higher the probability that the events you're witnessing in Ohio are going to re be repeated again and again, he said. Brantley isn't as concerned. Quote, I'm not really sure you can say that there's so many wells that they're just going to start spewing all over the place, she said. But with all the fracked shale wells now, she's not sure how regulators can prevent brine migrations to the surface. You've got 12,000 new wells, and you may have hundreds of thousands of old wells. What would due diligence be, she asked. How many people would you need with feet on the ground looking at this to really figure out precisely when we cannot predict where a fracture is going to go? Modern fracking in these ancient shale layers quickly took hold in the industry, but people are still learning the impacts of all this waste, of all the waste it creates, according to Brantley. Quote, we innovate faster than we can figure out what the implications are, 
That is just a true statement about humans, right? She said. Well, right, but wrong. We make choices and decisions as humans. We might innovate faster than we can figure out what the implications are. That may be true. But that does not mean that we have to impose these new innovations on people, on humans, on the environment, on the earth, without determining what the implications are. You create something new, you don't just release it. You don't just pursue it ad nauseum without lots of study to determine the safety and the risks of it. And in the case of fracking, it was deployed much too fast, with much too little oversight, with deliberate avoidance of oversight, so that now we're picking up the pieces and now a decade and two decades later, we're discovering what some of those implications are and what some of those harms are and who's responsible for them. Well, unfortunately, in most cases, we've let the industry off the hook, say you're not responsible for them. So then who is responsible when someone's land gets poisoned, when someone's body gets poisoned? We need to adopt the precautionary principle. The precautionary principle is you create a new process, a new chemical, a new anything, and you control it very, very tightly until you can prove that it does no harm or that the harms that it does are very far outweighed by the benefits. And you then mitigate the harms it does as much as possible you find ways to compensate for those harms in order to be able to reap the benefits of that. We don't live by the precautionary principle. We live, we live by the, is there something new and beneficial? Let's use it. Let's release it. Let's do it. Let's, let's use it everywhere. And then later on, we'll study the results and people die. Next up, a piece from EurasiaReview.com. When hydraulic fracturing operations ground to a halt last spring in the Kiskatnaw area of British Columbia, researchers expected seismic quiescence in the region. Instead, hundreds of small earthquakes occurred for months after operations shut down, according to a new study. In her presentation at the Seismological Society of America's 2021 annual meeting, Rebecca Salvage of the University of Calgary said about 65% of these events could not be attributed to either natural seismicity or active fluid injection from hydraulic fracturing operations. Salvage and her colleagues instead suggest the latent earthquakes may be the result of seismic slip, of a seismic slip driven by fluid from previous hydraulic fracturing injections, keeping rock pore pressures elevated. Quote, Because there are lots of faults in that area, the fluid is becoming trapped in these zones, Salvage explained, and as aseismic deformation occurs, which leads to very, very slow slip in these zones, then you get seismicity generated from that process. The study by Salvage and a University of Calgary colleague David Eaton offers an unusual glimpse 
and how hydraulic fracturing may alter the rate of seismicity in a region long after active operations cease. Their findings may reflect a new background rate of seismicity for that area, Salvage said. Quote, but since this is such an unprecedented situation, we have no idea whether that is the case, and we won't know until all hydraulic fracturing ceases in the Kiskatinaw Seismic Monitoring and Mitigation Area entirely, which is unlikely to occur at any time in the near future. Hydraulic fracturing operations are thought to be the main cause of seismic activity in the Kiskatinaw region, causing thousands of small earthquakes over the past two decades. The area, along with most of western Canada, has very few natural earthquakes. Between 1984 and 2008, before oil and gas operations in the area, seismologists detected only 20 earthquakes in the Kiskatinaw region, Salvage said. Researchers had just finished installing a new seismic array in the KSMMA in January 2020, hoping to learn more about how active operations were related to earthquakes, particularly those of very small magnitudes. Operators in the area have their own small private arrays, quote, but the public sensors in the area were much more scattered and sparse, said Salvage. We installed this array thinking, this is going to be great, we're going to capture all this hydraulic fracturing. But when COVID-19 reached the region, operations came to a halt due to a government lockdown, which caused plummeting oil and gas prices. Then the researchers noted things weren't exactly quiet. Between April and August 2020, they detected 389 earthquakes during a period of almost no hydraulic fracturing. All of the earthquakes were magnitude 1.2 or smaller, quote, so it wouldn't be noticeable to anybody that the background seismicity had increased without a seismologist doing the analysis, Salvage said. The earthquakes didn't fall into the same patterns that would be expected of hydraulic fracturing-induced seismicity, according to the researchers. The rate of earthquakes persisted over time instead of declining, and there was no pattern of earthquakes moving away from an initial source, as is often observed doing, during active fluid injection. Hydraulic fracturing has resumed in the area, along with an uptick in earthquakes, Salvage said. And finally, a piece by Gizmodo. This is at earther.gizmodo.com, written by Darna Noor. Appalachian's fracking industry may never be profitable again, is the title. And to that I would, I would have to question, has it ever, ever been profitable in the past? It's clear that we need to stop natural gas production to avoid the worst effects of the climate crisis. But a new report from the Stockholm Environment Institute's U.S. Center and the Ohio River Valley Institute shows that there's another reason companies should stop extracting shale gas in the nation's Appalachian region. Expanding drilling is not even likely to be profitable. About a decade ago, shale gas production in Pennsylvania, Ohio, and West Virginia exploded, soaring upward after a sharp decline over the previous two decades. This was largely due to the widespread adoption of fracking, a method that producers used to crack open once inaccessible underground fossil fuel reserves in rocks deep underground. The Appalachian industry saw a boom made possible by cheap loans from Wall Street after the 2008 recession. But now the market is waning again. 
For years, there have been signs that natural gas isn't a good investment. One pre-pandemic 2020 report showed that building out gas infrastructure is putting investors at risk of losing tens of billions of dollars. Amid the spread of COVID-19, gas demand plummeted. As the U.S. gets the pandemic under control, gas demand is beginning to rebound modestly. But the question of whether the Appalachian shale market will ever regain its former glory remains. To answer it, the authors analyzed 200 proposed shale gas drilling projects for Pennsylvania, Ohio, and West Virginia. Using data from Energy Research and Business Intelligence Agency, Rystad Energy, they assessed how much money it would take to operate each proposal and determined how high gas prices would have to be to make the projects profitable. To determine whether these projects are safe investments, the authors focused on four main factors that could affect the market, then examined academic and government studies on how each one will play out. They found the most important one is the future of domestic gas demand. On this front, things aren't looking good for shale drillers. Recent Department of Energy data projects that gas consumption will stay flat over the next decade, the report notes. And since renewable energy has also become cheaper, a trend that is expected to continue, natural gas is an even less desirable choice. National governments, including the Biden administration, have been making commitments to decarbonize the energy sector. Leading climate scientists say these commitments are by and large not nearly bold enough to meet the scale of the crisis, but they could still help tank the already struggling Appalachian gas industry. For instance, the Biden administration re-entered the country into the Paris Agreement in January. The authors reviewed five projections of what demand for natural gas would look like in the U.S. if the nation imposed policies consistent with that agreement's goals and found most forecasts call for two-thirds less natural gas use in 2040 compared to 2019. Quote, Our findings suggest that climate policymakers should take seriously what rapid decarbonization likely means for the future of gas in Appalachia, Peter Erickson, a senior scientist and climate policy program director with Stockholm Environment Institute and the report's lead author said in an email. This means working closely with economic policymakers and labor to craft a durable economic foundation for the region, one that makes a structural move away from fossil fuels and towards the growing, more hopeful goods and services of the future. International factors could further downgrade the outlook for gas, ranging from weak demand abroad as other countries also decarbonize, to prices that make it unprofitable to dredge up gas for petrochemicals. All told, the report suggests that the Appalachian natural gas market faces an uncertain future at best. The report confirms recent admissions from the gas industry itself. As Desmog reported this month, some drilling firms are being beginning to realize that the fracking boom is waning and that shale isn't staying profitable. A failing Appalachian natural gas market may sound like good news for the climate, but we shouldn't simply let the market do its work. This kind of unplanned failure could result in companies abandoning polluting fracking wells instead of properly winding them down to curb emissions. It would also be disastrous for workers if firms simply laid them off and pocketed whatever money remains from their operations. A separate recent report from the Ohio Valley River Institute shows that communities are already suffering for that reason. Quote, 
There is a need for policymakers to attend to the transition, whatever that looks like. Eric DePlace, research fellow at the Ohio River Valley Institute and co-author of the report, said in an email. Appalachia is well familiar with the impacts of unplanned transition from coal and steel historically, which resulted from evolving global markets. Decarbonization policy gives us a golden opportunity to prepare for changes, as well as to develop better strategies with a real chance of bringing prosperity to Appalachian communities. And that'll wrap up this episode of Frack You Very Much, a fracking terrible podcast. Remember, you can go to frackyouverymuch.com and check out all the back episodes. You can also follow on Twitter at FYVMshow. And you can listen to this podcast and all my podcasts playing 24-7 at movingtrainradio.com. Here is Leon Rosselson with Who Reaps the Profits, Who Pays the Bills. Thanks for listening. You sit there handing down orders. You examine the terms of the deal. A car is always waiting. Other hands turn the wheel. The doors slide open before you. The doors slide shut behind. Other hands carry your luggage. Weightier matters engage your mind. You take the gold out of the earth. You throw the corpses in. One crop is as good as another As long as the cash keeps pouring in The wheels must never stop turning The machine must be obeyed The future has got to be fueled And there's a price to be paid Black like the dust Brown like the earth This is our land The land of our birth Silently digging Digging our graves Choking our bodies, choking our lives Living on scraps, dying in debt Digging in darkness so our children can eat Once we were free, greeting the sun Sharing the earth, giving thanks to the corn Sang with the waters, sang with the wind Danced with the drum Circle without end Now we are silent They have taken our tongues They have taken our pride They have taken our songs Only our bodies Only our eyes Burn with the memory Of the old ways Brown like the earth Black like the dust Who can we turn to Who can we trust You've got no patience with failure You've got no time for delay Certainty points to the future Straight lines carve out the way You never make moral judgments Only one truth you defend Money must be free to make money That's all there is in the end You take the diamonds out of the earth You throw the corpses in One crop is as good as another As long as the cash keeps pouring in The wheels must never stop turning The machine must be obeyed The future has got to be fueled And there's a price to be paid 
Brown like the earth, black like the dust. Who can we turn to? Who can we trust? The gun is their god. They have taken our land. They take what we dig. They take without end. We drown in the dust. We choke in the heat. Our skin grows sores. Our lungs rot. Still we remember the cold clear air waking at dawn with a morning star still we remember the sound of the flute the feel of the grass under our feet death may come quickly if the mine floods if the rock talks if the gas explodes mostly we linger on death's cold bed clutching for air Coughing up blood Nobody cares Nobody sees We make no headlines Dying by degrees A thousand shapes wait to attend The ones who drive your cars Who reserve your place at the table Who order your daily cigars Who silently guard your privacy Who make sure your ties are new who remind you of your appointments You know that they all depend on you You take the uranium out of the earth You throw the corpses in One crop is as good as another As long as the cash keeps pouring in The wheels must never stop turning The machine must be obeyed The future has got to be fueled And there's a price to be paid Nobody cares Nobody sees, we make no headlines, dying by degrees. What choice do we have? They have taken our home. We wait in silence, our time will come. They, they tear, tear from the earth, they leave nothing behind. Only raw scars on a wasteland. Someday and soon, the mountains will shake. The drum will sound, the sun will turn black And from out of the dust, and from under the earth We will arise, proclaiming this truth All life is sacred, all life is one From the rocks on the mountains, to the children unborn And the walls will topple, and the fences will fall And the scars will be healed and the earth will be whole This is our land The land of our birth Black like the dust Brown like the earth You never carry money You like your life ordered and clean You make out checks to charity No one can call you mean Through your double lot gateways Only the privileged pass Admire your taste and elegance Marvels of marble and silver and glass You take the earth out of the earth You throw the corpses in One crop is as good as another As long as the cash keeps pouring in The wheels must never stop turning The machine must be obeyed The future has got to be fueled And there's a price to be paid